hot flashes, vaginal dryness, painful sex, low libido, recurrent urinary tract infections, weight gain, insomnia, orgasm? What orgasm? Menopause is a very special time, and I'm betting you've not gotten a lot of information from your own doctor. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, a clinical professor of obstetrics and gynecology, the medical director of the Northwestern Medicine Center for Sexual Medicine and Menopause, a practicing gynecologist, best-selling author, and a nationally recognized menopause expert. My mantra has always been, if women are given good information, they'll make good choices. And I'm here to give you the inside information on all things menopause. A few weeks ago, I posted a podcast about the impact of menopause on work. And no surprise, I got a huge response from women who said, that's me. I can't concentrate. I can't focus. I can't think. Am I going crazy? Do I have early Alzheimer's? Am I just getting old? Or is it menopause? There were so many questions and comments, I realized it was time to talk to an expert, actually the expert on cognition and menopause. Today, I am joined by Dr. Pauline Mackey. Dr. Mackey is a professor of psychiatry, psychology, and obstetrics and gynecology at the University of Illinois at Chicago. For over 25 years, she has led a program of NIH-funded research on women and cognition, with a focus on cognitive change in menopause. She's the past president of the North American Menopause Society and has over 185 publications in scientific journals. Everything, everything I know about cognition and menopause, I learned from Dr. Mackey, and it is an honor for me to have her as my guest today. So welcome. No, thank you, Dr. Stryker. It's my honor. So let's start with this. How common is it for women to be forgetful when they're going through perimenopause? Yeah, it's very common. About 40% of women report that they're more forgetful than they used to be. And this rate of forgetfulness increases as women transition from the premenopause to the perimenopause, the time around the final menstrual period, uh, and persists into the postmenopause. And this is controlling, adjusting, accounting for the fact that women are getting one year older every year. So this is more of a hormonal menopause effect than it is an aging effect. Well, so that's so interesting because when you try and, and do the deep dive into why is this happening? So it's not aging. Is it insomnia? Is it actual changes in brain chemistry or is it specifically hormones? Yeah, all of all of the above. So. Dr. Stryker, most people, when they think about menopause in the brain, think more about, oh, what's the estrogen role here, right? What is What are the hormones doing to my, to my brain? And we have a lot of really convincing data to suggest that, in fact, estrogen is really important for maintaining our cognitive capacity, particularly our memory, right? So there is a role, certainly, for estrogen, and we can talk about how we know that. What's less commonly discussed, but right on your radar, because you're such a fantastic clinician and such an expert in this area, what's ignored is the menopause symptoms. And so our work has really illustrated the, the importance of that sleep disturbance at the menopause in memory and also the hot flashes and the mood, but all of those are interrelated. So it's really complex and we need to kind of tailor our advice to women based not only on the fact that they're transitioning through menopause and their hormones are changing, but what are their symptoms that might be contributing to cognitive difficulties? I I want to circle back to hot flashes specifically because a lot of women really don't 
understand that there is a relationship between hot flashes and cognition. And a study that I quote a lot, and I know you do too, is the SWAN study, the study of the women, a study of women across the nation, and mm-hmm. where they tracked women over a long period of time. And and I thought it was really f- incredible what they found in terms of the relationship between hot flashes and cognition in that study. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so, so both that study and some um, previous smaller studies have shown that the more hot flashes a woman has and the more bothersome those hot flashes are, the more memory problems that women have. And, you know, the SWAN is really important because it's a representative sample of women living in the United States, although they don't have a lot of poor black and brown women, which is one of its limitations. It's racially diverse. Um, And I can talk a little bit later about our work in that population in menopause, which is really important. And I think an important health disparity for us to discuss. Um, But but that that work on self-reported hot flashes um, was foundational. But then the science improved and the science improved in ways that allowed us to measure hot flashes objectively. So we could measure whether a woman was having a hot flash, regardless of whether she knew it. And this is really important because a woman's not going to tell you when she's sleeping if she's having a hot flash, right? We need to be able to monitor these in a way that doesn't require her to tell us. And so that's where we took our work. And what we found is that the more hot flashes we measured, the worse a woman's memory. So we found this. And then in another study, we looked at the brain. And we looked at brain structure, and this is work with Rebecca Thurston, uh, my good colleague and professor at the University of Pittsburgh. And what we found in that study was that the more hot flashes a woman had, the more white matter hyperintensity she had in her brain. In other words, the more kind of tiny, tiny stroke-like lesions we could see in the brain, which was surprising. And we just replicated that in another study. Um, And then finally, we found that the more hot flashes a woman had, the the worse her brain functions. So we can actually measure in a brain scanner how the brain is functioning. And we found that the memory centers of the brain, the hippocampus, doesn't function as well. It has to try to really, really go like having a very rapid heart rate when we're trying to run a a marathon. It has to really um, increase its activity the more hot flashes a woman has. So this idea that hot flashes are these benign things that women just need to get over um, is is, um, being dispelled universally in the field of menopause. And it's interesting that that also applies to cognition. And it's amazing that more people don't know this and are not focusing on it because, as you said, this is one of the most common complaints in menopause and and yet no one is talking about the impact of hot flashes on cognition. So you mentioned your studies, which I'm familiar with in terms of women not being aware of many or if not most of their hot flashes. So spend a minute talking a little bit about how you did those studies and how many hot flashes women really are even aware of that they're having. Yeah, it's it's really important because I think even when I was transitioning through menopause, you know, you you don't want to complain too much. There's some stigma about describing your experience. Right. And and what was interesting is in our research, we found that far from being hypochondriacal complaining women, women actually underreported their hot flashes. They had many more hot flashes than they thought they had. And they underreported it by 30 to 40 percent not just at night, but also during the day. 
So um, we didn't find evidence for an exaggeration of the symptoms. To your second question, how many hot flashes were women having? Well, the way that we measure these is we have, um, we have a technology that measures sweating. And it measures sweating on the surface of the skin in the sternum. And when a woman has a hot flash, uh, this, this monitor shows a rapid increase in sweating. It's measured as electric activity on the surface of the skin, but it's, it's a very distinct event because hot flashes are kind of zero to a hundred miles an hour, right? So you see this very rapid increase in sweating. And so we can, we can measure whether our monitors detect a hot flash and we can measure whether the woman says she's having a hot flash. And that's how we know that she's underreporting her hot flashes. In some women, we have found 52 hot flashes in a day with these monitors. We also find highly prevalent hot flashes in 62, 63-year-old women. So more than 10 years after the final menstrual period. Um, some women have very few, mm -hmm. and we can see that. And there's a really nice concordance between the number of hot flashes a woman says she has and how many the monitor picks up on. So, so a woman's validated in her description of how many she's having. It's just that she's in general having fewer than, or having more than she thinks she's having. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and of course, as, as you said, these hot flashes are doing damage, whether you're aware of them or not. That's right. You know, in earlier podcasts, when I, um, I think I called it, if you think your hot flashes can't kill you, think again. And I was really focusing on cardiovascular disease and the very mm -hmm. high correlation between hot flashes and, and cardiovascular disease because of the vascular damage that, that occurs whenever someone has a hot flash. So my question for you is when we look at these cognitive changes that are associated with hot flashes, is that because of vascular damage in the brain? Or is it, as you said, the, the brain tissue itself is being affected? Oh, that's, that's the million dollar question, Dr. Yeah. Stryker. And that's why the National Institute on Aging funds our Ms. Brain cohort study. So I can, I can tell you a little bit about what we know so far. Um, so Rebecca Thurston, who is largely credited with discovering this association between objective hot flashes and cardiovascular risk factors, has reliably shown an association between those variables, as, as you suggest. So th th this is a strong association. It's, it's really unclear yet as to whether or not it's a causal association. It may be, or it may be that vulnerable women have both the cardiovascular disease and the hot flashes, and that the hot flash are just a marker for that. So that's an open question. For cognition, we've done a study where we treated the hot flashes with a non-hormonal intervention that took away about 50% of the hot flashes. And we found that memory bounced back. Mm -hmm. So that's interesting because it suggests a causal association. That is, if you take away the hot flashes with something that doesn't affect memory systems, but that improves the hot flashes, it improves the memory. In other words, this product wouldn't work to improve memory in somebody who didn't have hot flashes. It's just in the context of hot flashes. Hot flashes. That's that, right. Is that stellate ganglion block? It That's was stellate ganglion blockade. Yeah, it yeah. was and, a and very strong. I, I mentioned that is because if we don't say how you took away hot flashes, every single woman is going to say, "Wait a minute, how'd you take oh, away yeah, hot yeah, flashes?" Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and, and this an, is yeah. actually a procedure which is done really in, in a research setting uh, yeah. to take away hot flashes. But it, it's right. quite interesting, and we learn a lot about them. Um, all right, so let's get back to now that we know what women are not experiencing. Let's talk about what they're experiencing. 
at what point, when we talk about perimenopause, and obviously there's early perimenopause when a woman is still getting periods and maybe having some minor symptoms, at what point for most women, if you can generalize, are you going to start to see cognitive changes as a result of perimenopause? And then typically, how long are they going to last? Because we know you generally these cognitive changes do not last forever. These are transient. That's so, right. So and that's the frame. good news. That is and good thank news. you for pointing that out, because there's a lot of messaging now um, that doesn't align well with my read of the data or my own data. Um, there's some messaging that suggests that when you transition through menopause, you're on your way to dementia. And that's not that's not true. So let me just put that it's out you. there. <laughs> yeah, that's not, that's not true. So um, what do we know? Well, it's really important um, to validate what women think is going on. So when women transition through the perimenopause, as we initially discussed, they're saying they're having forgetfulness. They're saying they're having memory difficulty. If we administer memory tests to women, we see this. We see the forgetfulness in their performance on these memory tests. And that begins in the early perimenopause. It begins when women's um, periods are changing in their frequency. So if they got their period once every 28 days, now they're getting it 17 days later, and then they're getting it 38 days later. So when periods are changing in the regularity, it becomes even worse when they skip periods. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like, is this my mic? Wait, hold on, I'm gonna stop for one second. Is my microphone making this funny noise? Do you hear no. it? No. Oh, okay. All right, let me pause and start again. During the perimenopause, of course, a lot of these symptoms come and go. So, in your research, have you found that this forgetfulness also comes and goes? Oh, I haven't had the pleasure of doing what we call ecological momentary assessment. That's just a fancy way of saying, asking women about their cognition every single day. So I haven't, I haven't done that study yet. It would yet. be kind of interesting though. Just, it would be. It would, yeah. And in my own experience, uh, when I transitioned through the perimenopause, I noticed it right before my period. Yeah. So I, I felt the brain changes when I was uh, experiencing an estrogen withdrawal. And it was fascinating because I, I knew about this because I've been studying it since I was 25. I would say right? you're probably hyper aware more than most women. <laughs> I think I am. I think I am. But, but let's talk about the bounce back. So the research studies show very, very, very reliably that among all of the cognitive abilities that we assess in the lab, so how well we concentrate, um, how well we can plan and strategize, um, our visual spatial abilities, how, how we navigate with maps uh, in our memory of all of those kinds of capacities. The one that estrogen seems to affect the most and menopause seems to affect the most is something called verbal memory, which is what we're doing right now. You are listening to verbal material that I'm presenting to you and you're encoding it right now. And then maybe you'll recall it later. This is simply verbal memory. So it's really relevant for women's lives. In the laboratory, we just give women a grocery list to test verbal memory, but it's the same concept. That is the cognitive ability that reliably in longitudinal studies changes in the perimenopause. And research from the SWAN and research from the Penovarian Aging Study suggests that that's time limited, that for most women, it bounces back. How soon? In the early postmenopause. Okay. And we know that perimenopause, of course, can go on for years. Yeah, two to three years after the FMP, generally. 
meaning the final menstrual period. Yeah, exactly. Yep. So are you, you already answered one question about that. This doesn't mean that you're becoming demented if you have these problems with memory and cognitive function during the perimenopause and early postmenopause. But are these kinds of memory issues in any way predictive of getting Alzheimer's later in life? So we haven't yet gotten the longitudinal data following women from the time they were menopausal, where we know if they're, you know, in the perimenopause or postmenopause, and then tracking complaints at that point later in life. We do know that in both sexes, the greater the subjective cognitive complaint at midlife, the higher the risk for dementia later in life. So in general. So, but not related to menopause, just in We general. don't yet know. that yeah. That's an unknown question, but we do know that women's complaints increase. Um, but the thing is, that's temporary, right? So this is a special case where it's, it's, it seems to be a temporary cognitive um, uh, complaint issue. Whereas in most people, once you have the cognitive complaint, the memory doesn't usually get better. It just kind of gradually gets worse as we age. So I see this as a different kind of, of cognitive complaint. And, and theoretically, I think the women for whom this might be a period of increased risk, like their brain is is taking a different turn are the women with untreated severe hot flashes, mm -hmm. untreated moderate to severe, because the other thing that happens to women when they have a hot flash at night, 75% of the time they wake up. That's beautiful data that's been studied in the lab. So if you're waking up night after night, after night, after night for seven years, right? The average um, time, amount of time that women have hot flashes, that's a lot of sleep deprivation. Right. And we know that sleep deprivation, sleep disturbance is, is a very um, important modifiable risk factor for Alzheimer's disease. Yeah, no, in fact, I um, did a podcast with our mutual friend, Dr. Stephanie Fobian, um, yeah. about yeah. that. And, and we did touch on that and the importance of sleep during perimenopause and postmenopause, even in women who are not having issues with hot flashes. So, yes. okay, other than insomnia and hot flashes, are there any other risk factors or things that might predict that someone is going to be that woman who cannot remember why she walked into a room? Mood. Mood. So depressive symptoms in particular. So we have found that even mild depressive symptoms are associated with declines in cognitive function. We know this. You don't, you don't need to do a research study to know that when we're not our happiest, we're not um, remembering as well. But, you know, I also think in, in, as an expert clinician, you probably have observed this firsthand many, many times what we don't appreciate in this association is that when our mood is low, we make decisions that aren't good for our brain health, right? Yep. So we, we don't reach for the hummus. We reach for the cookie or the glass of wine, or we have that second glass of wine. And instead of working out, we go to Netflix, right? So there's this direct issue of, chemical changes associated with depression and how that might affect the brain. But there's also how these changes in depression change our behavior and how that in turn puts our brain at risk because we want to exercise. We want to eat the Mediterranean diet. 
We want to engage in social activities. And when we're down, we don't necessarily want to get up and hang out with our friends, right? So, so that association is also very complex, but very real in women's yeah. daily lives. So, so let's talk about solutions, because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, while this is fascinating to know what happens and why it happens, we need to give women something to do, some some real solutions. Yes. And, you know, if you read <laughs> popular magazines, which I know you don't, but you, know, you would think that if you drink green tea and you eat lots of fish and you have take vitamins like vitamin E and B, that that's going to help. So what does the science say about things like green tea and vitamins and diet as far as perimenopause and postmenopause cognitive function? So the first thing I would say is, is we need to be kind to ourselves and give ourselves a break. If we're moody or if we're forgetful, we can't beat ourselves up and, you know, take blame for it. So these are normal. These are normal. Be kind to yourself. And then what do you do about it? So let's talk diet, as you said. Um, So there actually is very good evidence that the Mediterranean diet prevents preclinical Alzheimer's disease, mm-hmm. randomized trials. So the Mediterranean diet, so that's a whole overhaul of your diet. That's making healthier selections. But one product here and another product here, there's no evidence that that's going to improve your, your um, memory performance. So, so um, yeah, so the green tea is not going to do it. Um, you know, and, and we really need the Alzheimer's work, um, which informs our understanding of how to keep the brain healthy generally. So I'm not meaning to say menopause is dementia, but what do we know about how to keep our brain healthy as we age? Um, eating um, more of the Mediterranean diet, you don't need to change the entire diet, just change more of it to be the Mediterranean diet. Um Exercise is really important. You have to get that heart rate up at least three to four times a day, um, and uh, or three, sorry, three to four times a week. I and say, not, you know, I like to exercise, but not yeah, but not three to four times, times, times a day. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but you can mix it up. So the good news is that for many busy women, it's impossible to find forty-five minutes during a day to work out. And research shows that you can break it up into fifteen-minute intervals during your day. So you can take a brisk fifteen-minute walk three times a day, and it can be good for your brain health, which is, you know, somewhat more accessible to some women. That's really important. Getting social interactions, engaging um, socially with our friends, is really important for our brain health and for our cardiovascular health. Meaning that the TV does not count doesn't count. It doesn't count. Um, and like I, I like to say, even looking at John Hamm, which I love to do, is not necessarily <laughs> good for your brain. So even the best of TV isn't necessarily good for your brain. Maybe Jeopardy is. <laughs> so that brings up cognitive activity. Crossword TV, puzzles. Should we be doing crossword puzzles? If you find them challenging. So the key to cognitive activity is it has to be something that you find challenging. So learning another language, um, learning new dancing is excellent because it combines both the exercise component and the memory component and the social component. So there've actually been randomized trials of dancing. And I know you as a former ballerina would, would resonate with that. It's so funny because I'm actually thinking of taking up ballroom dancing with my husband. We were just talking about that. Someone gifted us some ballroom oh, dancing and we thought, well, that would be kind of fun. So now I have yet another reason to do that. You do. And you won't demand anyway, but sure, why not? (laughs) Um, The other thing is it's really important to quit smoking. 
smoking is very toxic to the brain. Um, so, so avoiding smoking, avoiding anything that might increase your risk for a head injury. Um, so, you know, think again about skiing and how important it is unless you're highly, highly skilled. So any, any, any brain injury, even, um, repeated brain injuries that don't lead to a loss of consciousness, um, lead to changes in the brain that, that can be very, very, um, toxic to people getting sleep, as we mentioned, Sleep. is really, I mean, really honestly, when someone comes to the clinic that's the number one thing i talk to them about is mm-hmm. when they say i can't think i'm moody and my first question is are you getting any sleep because yep. that really very often is is the key to the whole thing okay i know what you're going to say but i have to ask it because women are always asking me prevagen <laughs> all the commercials say take prevagen and you'll have you know great memory i know you're shaking no. your head everyone can't see it but. no there's no there's there's no convincing evidence. You know, the best thing we can do is a little bit of everything. Um, Really important for women, and many women don't know this, is that to keep your brain healthy, you got to keep your heart healthy. And that was the basis of your question earlier today. So we want to have healthy uh, blood pressure, healthy cholesterol levels. We don't want prediabetes. We want to keep our heart as healthy as we can um, because our brain's also a vascular organ, organ, right? And um, we see fascinating, I look at brain scans every week um, in our Ms. Brain cohort and the, the differences in women of the same age in how you can see these lesions, these white matter hyperintensities is profound. Some women's brains are just littered with these, these tiny lesions. They're not dementia. They're not demented in many of, you know, some level of this is normal. Those women tend to have, be women with uncontrolled blood pressure. It, you know, you see these risk factors just in a given um, scan. So really try to control that heart health and get that exercise and which is not only going to obviously improve cognitive function, but is also going to improve the length of your life. Because that's we know, right. of course, that most women die from cardiovascular disease. And that's right. That's right. Have a sharp mind and live long. Yep. So and if, use the hormone therapy if you're having the hot flashes. Well, exactly. So I'm going to get to hormone therapy. Yeah. Because I do want to, I want to address that specifically. But before we go there. Are there any medications that that seem to make a difference? I mean, I had read somewhere that, for example, ADHD drugs can help women in terms of their perimenopause cognitive function. Is there any truth? Yeah, there's there's actually a very intriguing randomized clinical trial by Neil Epperson of a psychostimulant medication um, that she used in women with a very specific complaint. And the complaint of the women in this clinical trial was that they felt like they had ADHD, that it was an inattentive kind of experience for them. And they, um, Dr. Epperson had them complete an ADHD survey, and they actually met criteria for having a certain level of the symptomatology. And just like stimulants help with ADHD, they helped with women who were experiencing um, these kinds of cognitive issues. And uh, there were some brain imaging studies that showed changes in the brain with this intervention. So perhaps for that particular type, what we call a phenotype, that particular subgroup of women who it feels like ADHD, maybe a stimulant would be helpful. 
Should we all be getting brain imaging and beginning to think that? <laughs> do you want to know? <laughs> I think you know you've got a point there. I think I'd rather not know. All right, let's let's talk about hormone therapy. I mean, anyone who has been spending any time with me knows that I'm a, a big advocate of hormone therapy in terms of being the safest and most effective way to eliminate hot flashes. But I would really like to focus on the science of using hormone therapy beyond eliminating hot flashes. Because I think from all of your comments, it's, it's quite clear that if you have terrible hot flashes, then if you take hormone therapy to eliminate the hot flashes, that's going to help your cognitive mm-hmm. function, both in the short term and the long term. But what about the woman who says, yeah, my hot flashes aren't so bad. I really don't feel like I need to do anything in terms of getting rid of my hot flashes. Is hormone therapy worthwhile for that woman if she's worried about her cognitive function? Yeah, the literature here is not clear. And indeed, the literature can be um, at odds with itself. So let me describe why. Um, There's only been one randomized trial of hormone therapy for the primary prevention that is preventing the development of dementia. And that's the Women's Health Initiative. And the Women's Health Initiative Memory Study, which was a sub-study designed specifically to look at this, um, actually found that women who are randomized to a form of hormone therapy that's rarely used anymore, it's conjugated equine estrogen, medroxyprogesterone acetate. Yeah, yeah. That one, which, you know, was appropriate to study because that's what most women were using. But nonetheless, what that study revealed is a doubling of the risk of all-cause dementia after five years of treatment with that formulation. No problems whatsoever with conjugated equine estrogen or estrogen alone. But that led to a lot of, lot of um, interest and in, in concern about hormone therapy and dementia. Well, there are a few things to note about that. The first one is that the women in that trial were older than age 65 when they started. Seventy percent. And the women who were age 50 to 60 did not show memory problems. There was a subsequent clinical trial, so it didn't apply to those women, which is very, very reassuring. That conclusion was also drawn by three other large randomized trials of women between the ages of 50 and 60. Okay, so, so the, the very trial that said, ooh, we need to be concerned, did not see a problem. Yeah, in women so just to be clear, so everyone understands this. For women who started hormone therapy at the onset of peri- or postmenopause, they did not have a decline in cognitive function as a result right. of hormone therapy. It was only the women who were older, who were more than 10 That's years right. from their last menstrual period. And this is That's such right. an important message because you get a lot of doctors out there who are still quoting, who are saying, no, this is actually bad for your brain. When yeah. in fact, there is this, what we call critical window that you have to start it within this time frame. Yeah. So then, so then if you look at the study that showed this dimension, those older women, What's really interesting is that effect was driven, the risk of dementia with hormone therapy was driven by women who already were showing some signs of dementia. Mm -hmm. Women whose brains were healthy when they started did not show that risk. So this is the exact same thing they saw in heart disease. Yes. The damage was already done. That's right. The analogy is perfect, right? So, So this is what I call the what I refer to Robbie Britton's theory, the healthy cell bias. Estrogen works well if you're healthy. 
Yeah. And yeah. It, it, if your brain is healthy, it seems to work well. So, so let's get at this idea that estrogen is harmful if you're older. Is that, is that true? So 2017, they published 18-year follow-up data of the Women's Health Initiative. 27,000 women followed for 18 years to find out how, how they died. Did hormone therapy cause women to die of, of anything? And the answer was no. It didn't cause any differential. So, so that's really good news. In fact, in fact, for dementia, the women who were randomized to estrogen alone had a significant reduced risk of dying from Alzheimer's disease. The yeah, estrogen decrease in all-cause mortality. So and the, the decrease in all-cause mortality. Yeah. So, so you know, this big uh, alarm bell does not align with the data from the long-term follow-up. And so I think there may be some women, just like with hormone therapy and cardiovascular disease, who are already on their way to accelerated disease. And when you onboard suddenly... There's a small, small, small proportion of women for whom that's, a, if you will, a toxic event. But for the majority of women, as shown in that 18-year follow-up study, it seemed to reduce the risk of Alzheimer's yeah. disease, which is actually very consistent with the literature on estrogen alone. Estrogen alone, you'd be hard-pressed to show data on harm at any age. That's right. And so the other thing I want to talk about is when you look at the women that were in the WHI, not only were they older, but these tended to be women who didn't have hot flashes. I mean, that's why they that's were right. older. They didn't that's want right. women to know if they were getting the real deal, estrogen, or if they were getting placebo. So yes. to circle back to my original question, what that says to me, and tell me if I'm misinterpreting this, is that for the woman who is not having hot flashes but who is having cognitive changes during the perimenopause and early postmenopause time, from what we've learned from the WHI, it seems that maybe that woman would benefit from hormone therapy, even if she doesn't need to reduce hot flashes. Yeah, it's, so that's a theoretical possibility. What's really fascinating when you look at that 18-year follow-up data is that the benefit was seen in the women who were randomized at age 70. Hmm. So it's the older women who are driving that effect. It was also seen to a lesser extent in the women who were 60. In part, that's just because you have many more dementia cases to see an effect among the women who are age 70. But what, what's striking about that is it suggests that maybe, in fact, estrogen has beneficial effects on brain aging, even if you give it later in life. Yeah. Right. Which is very different from how many people were thinking. We don't know if those women had subjective memory complaints, but we can anticipate that 40 percent of those women did because that's what we see on average. But it does suggest a potential direct benefit on the brain. Um, the, the challenge that we have in answering your question, Dr. Stryker, is that I would love to be able to quote to you the results of a randomized trial of any form of hormone therapy on memory and ideally brain function in women with moderate to severe hot flashes. I'd love to be able to quote the results of that study. Ironically, that study hasn't been done. We don't have, strangely, a randomized trial of hormone therapy for cognition in women who have the very uh, symptom that there's an indication 
yeah. <laughs> for hormone therapy, despite all of my data and data from other people suggesting a link between hot flashes and memory. And of course, people always say to me, well, why aren't these studies happening? What, you know, why? And, and the answer is, you know, better than anybody as a researcher is these studies take a very long time to do and they take a great deal of money. And someone has to be interested in funding this kind of research in order to get that data. Um, here's another question. I don't know if you have the data to answer, but if you have a woman who is, you know, perimenopause and she's not having any hot flashes and she's really not having any memory issues, she's not at all concerned but she has a strong family history of Alzheimer's disease and she wants to do whatever she can to reduce her risk down the road. Do we have any data that suggests that she would benefit from taking hormone therapy in the absence of any symptoms around the perimenopause? I don't think so. I, I, don't, I don't think I don't, it helps you. We don't think we have the data. I don't, I don't think we have any data. I think yeah. that's a data-free zone for use in in the perimenopause and women who have a history, there, there is, um, there's some observational data that might suggest uh, benefits in that time. And I did a, a neuroimaging study where women used who used um, who started to use hormone therapy in the perimenopause were imaged when they were now much older. Mm-hmm. And I did find their brains to be healthier and I did find their hippocampus to be better, but that wasn't specifically in women with a family history of Alzheimer's disease. I will say if you have a family history of longevity, you'll likely have a family history of Alzheimer's disease. Alzheimer's you disease, enough, you live long enough, you're going to get it. Right. Yeah. Right. So the family risk the women for whom this is a particularly difficult decision and in the emails that I'll get occasionally from providers around the country about are the women who happen to have that family history of early onset Alzheimer's disease. You know, um, there we know there's a very strong genetic link um, between um, the family history and the likelihood of developing dementia. And and that also is a relatively data-free zone. Um, So most of us have Alzheimer's in our family, and that might be important in decision-making about hormone therapy, but it might simply reflect your family's longevity. And my understanding is that there's no data to support if someone is diagnosed with Alzheimer's, that starting hormone therapy at that time is going to be beneficial. Clinical trials have been done on this and they've found no benefit. Yeah, that's sadly my understanding as well. Yeah. Um, So let's say you have someone who starts hormone therapy because she's having hot flashes and cognitive changes and now she's five, 10 years out. And of course I tell women to stay on their hormone therapy until they die. But I'd like to know your take on this from from a brain point of view once someone is on hormone therapy and assuming she has no reason to stop, is there a benefit cognitively for her staying on? Yeah, here the, here the data um, diverge. So some initial observational studies, so that means that women chose on their own with, in consultation with their provider whether to go on hormone therapy or not. Those studies um, actually show, some of them actually show that the ideal amount of time to be on hormone therapy is five years and that the benefits after that time wane. In retrospect, it could be because the women who are having consistent hot flashes for decades were the ones who were going on the hormone therapy and maybe there's some link there. Other studies suggest the longer you use it, the greater 
the protection. What was interesting in the WHI was that five years was long enough among those 70 to 75, 70 to 79 year old women to prevent dementia. So, so it doesn't seem like it's necessary Mm-hmm. to have it be longer. But, you know, I think women are pretty good judges of how their brain is functioning when they withdraw from any medication, right? I mean, women can say, I'm not thinking as clearly without my estrogen, right? So- um, I hear that all the time. You hear that all the time, right? And and um, I'm, I'm, I'm told that, uh, you know, as well. So I think women should judge for themselves, you know, what happens when they withdraw? Does their memory change? Does their memory um, decline? And perhaps use their subjective experience um, to make an informed decision. Our brain health is so, so critical to our well-being, right? Um, and, and equally, some women really benefit from hormone therapy, and you know this better than I do, because the hormone therapy it benefits their mood. It helps to stabilize their mood. And Mood is, you know, a healthy mood is critical for brain health as well. So that would be a second reason for a woman um, to stay on it. And if she withdrew from it and found that her mood was was not healthy, you know, then then she might want to rethink that decision in consultation with a great, great menopause practitioner. (laughs) Is there any data on testosterone? Because, um, I, you know, we all know that there's testosterone receptors, just like there are estrogen receptors all over yep. the body, including the brain. And we're learning a lot more about the role that testosterone plays, which, of course, is not a male hormone. It's a human hormone. It's a human hormone. And, yeah. And, and so how about cognition? What's is there a role there? Yeah. So testosterone is interesting as, as a hormone, you know, and we think about men having higher levels of testosterone, which they do. And we think about men having better spatial abilities than women on average, which, in fact, they do. You know, um, women have better verbal abilities and men have better spatial abilities on average. Um, And so it's interesting that in women, um, women with high endogenous, so high naturally occurring levels of testosterone tend to do better on spatial tests than women with naturally low levels of testosterone, which suggests to us that in fact, in women, testosterone might facilitate our ability to to follow maps, to navigate through space, to remember where certain locations are, to remember the routes to to places. Um, And there is some observational data to suggest that within the normal range of testosterone, there is this um, association. When you supplement with testosterone, the the data do not show a reliable improvement in any cognitive um, area. And that's true for women and for men. Interesting. All right. What else? What haven't I asked you that I should have asked you? What else do women need to know? Well, you know, we talked about sleep and, um, you know, I think there's a role for progesterone in promoting good sleep in women. And we talk a lot about estrogen, right? Um, and we know that um, the, re- the GABA receptor, so this particular ner- brain chemical is important for our anxiety. It's also important for our ability to to fall asleep. And progesterone can be a sleep promoting agent when it's given at night. And so you can think about, um, you know, the role of progesterone in maintaining brain health through its effects on sleep. Um, But, but, 
some women are sensitive to different types of progestins and, you know, so it has to be balanced out by the mood effects, but progesterone is also, since we went to estrogen and testosterone, I thought we might just touch a bit um, on, on the progesterone and progesterone plays a really important role in perinatal depression or postpartum depression um, through one of its metabolites through one of its byproducts. But if someone is sleeping fine and mood mm-hmm. is not an issue, mm-hmm. Any benefit to taking progesterone for those women? Because what Doesn't I'm thinking, seem- of course, are the women who, who don't have a uterus, who, who take estrogen and have no need for progesterone otherwise. No, it doesn't seem to confer any additional benefit. In fact, there's some animal work that suggests that it might take away some of the benefits of estrogen. So, you know, it's really important to know what progesterone makes your brain feel better mm-hmm. right. <laughs> or, or, or maybe the opposite. Because um, as you know better than I do, each woman is different in terms of her sensitivity to different um hormonal medication. So, so that's really important as well. Um, the other important thing about brain health is, um, you know, you don't have to start running marathons and you don't have to switch your diet to the Mediterranean diet. Um, you need a little bit of everything, you know, you need small amounts. So the, the clinical trials of Alzheimer's disease suggest that a multi-pronged approach a little bit better diet, a little bit better exercise, that will help to um, improve uh, cognition. So it's not just choose one thing, a little bit of a variety of different things seems to be really important. A little bit of of alcohol, okay? Oh, just a little bit. Actually, a little bit of alcohol seems to be better for the brain than no alcohol. Oh, good. Um, Yeah, so a little bit seems to be good, particularly wine, which is part of the Mediterranean diet, which is good news. It's not the only type form of the Mediterranean diet one should follow, but it is part of the Mediterranean diet. I think um, what, in my experience, what I've found is that many women um, try to address the mood symptoms of menopause by having a second glass of wine or a third glass of wine. Mm-hmm. It's the immediately available stress relief without a prescription. And the irony of this is that particularly when hormonal levels are in flux or when estrogen levels are low, excessive alcohol, even a little bit of excessive alcohol, tends to have this carryover effect the next day, which is more irritability in more negative mood. And so I like to caution women, you know, against this temptation after a busy work day after maybe taking care of of sick parents and children to not go for that second or third glass of wine, to go for a walk instead. Um, And so a little bit is helpful and too much is particularly bad in the state of hormonal flux. Which is true of so many things in life. Yes. You know what? I mean, this is mostly good news. I mean, that's the thing. When, When we think in terms of menopause and cognitive function and I worry, my patients worry, women worry yes. because we want to function. We want to, you know, we're, we're, we're at work, we're taking care of a lot of things. Yep. And, and the idea that we can't remember why we walked into the room and part of that's just multitasking, quite frankly, we have, mm-hmm. we're too busy. We think of too many things at once, but, but it's scary. I mean, it's really scary. And I think that this is. is very reassuring to know that number one, it's, it's normal. You can expect it to happen. Perfectly two, normal. Yep. It is, it is temporary. And number three, yeah. that there are some very specific things you can do 
um, that are really going to make a difference. And as you said, it a, a, a little of a lot of things make a big difference. So it's true. And women comprise two thirds of patients with Alzheimer's disease. So women are rightly concerned about how to keep their brain healthy, but it's really only the women, the rare, rare, rare women with a family history of early onset dementia that needs to be worried about memory problems at midlife. And that's, that's, you know, an unusual case. It happens, but it's an unusual case. So yes, absolutely. Women should be reassured that what they're experiencing is normal. They should be kind to themselves, not beat themselves up if they're having these cognitive lapses, not beat themselves up if they're, if they're feeling a little irritable. It's, it's, it's how the brain is adapting to and a write a lot of things down. Yeah. Write a lot of things down. And I do that. Someone, end of the day, I write no. their name down immediately as soon as I get a chance. I have a little note thing in my phone because I will forget. Oh, that's a good. That's a really, really good tip. And then the sleep tip, of course, is is the the brain dump. You keep a notebook next to your bed. And you write down anything that's been on your mind so that you're not keeping it active in your brain and you can let your brain rest. You know, the end of the day dump, I have to do this tomorrow. Don't forget that. Just write it down. And- I find I do, I do have a notebook by my bed and I find it's the middle of the night. If I wake up and all of a sudden I've thought of the perfect way to, to, to <laughs> you know, to write a paragraph or to do a paper I'm working on. And I write it down because otherwise I'll sit there and obsess about, I'm not going to remember it tomorrow. I'm not going to remember it tomorrow. Right. But then, of course, when I read it the next day and I thought, think, you know, why was that such a good idea? That was a terrible <laughs> idea. But at the time, it seemed like it was a really good idea. So, yeah. It was a good idea to write it down because you got better sleep. Exactly. But I did get better <laughs> sleep. Thank you so much for spending Oh, it was a time. pleasure speaking and, with you. Um, and we're going to have some recommended reading and resources for everyone in the program notes. And I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Anytime. Be well. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker. And thank you for joining me. You will find lots more information in my inside information books available on amazon.com and follow Francie as she navigates her way through vaginal dryness, hot flashes, and pretty much every menopausal symptom you can think of. Just have-